Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Nitai Daitel, Senior Program Officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am pleased to introduce our guests for today's program, exploring Taiwan's complex dynamics and implications for the United States and the U.S.-China relationship. Briefly, as their full bios can be found on our website, Jessica Drun is a non-resident fellow in the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. She was previously a non-resident fellow at the Project 2049 Institute, a China analyst at SOS International Center for Intelligence Research and Analysis, and spent a year in Taiwan as a Boren National Security Fellow. She specializes in cross-strait relations, Taiwan domestic politics, and U.S.-China relations. We're delighted to have her here today. Lev Nachman is an assistant professor at National Juncture University in Taipei, uh, where he teaches in the College of Social Science and the International College of Innovation. He was previously the 2021 Ho Family Postdoctoral Fellow at the Harvard Fairbank Center for China Studies, a Fulbright Research Fellow in Taiwan, and a visiting fellow at, the, at National Taiwan University. His research examines the domestic politics of contested states with a particular focus on social movements and political parties. Moderating today's conversation will be Sarah Newland, Assistant Professor of Government at Smith College, where she re researches and writes about public goods and services in rural China, collaboration between civil society organizations in the local state, local government responsiveness in Taiwan, and ethnic politics in China and Taiwan, among other topics. And her new research focuses on paradiplomacy between cities and states in the U.S., Taiwan, and mainland China. Dr. Newland is a member of the U.S.-Taiwan Next Generation Working Group and, as we're most proud, a fellow of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. Sarah, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to talking with everyone today. So I wanted to start with a topic that was in the news a lot a couple of months ago, um, which was Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. So when Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, Chinese officials were furious about the visit and retaliated with pretty provocative military drills around the island. Um, and in the US, there were somewhat mixed reactions. Both Republicans and Democrats really celebrated Pelosi's visit. Um, but there also were kind of reports that some, including um, the Biden White House, were concerned that the visit might sort of raise tensions between the US and China or might endanger Taiwan without bringing clear benefits to Taiwan. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Speaker Pelosi's visit was perceived in Taiwan? So I think, you know, perhaps one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings that a lot of people from uh, abroad looking towards Taiwan felt was that, you know, given all these really scary headlines and news about, you know, Chinese military drills, that people in Taiwan must have been really panicked. Uh, but the reality over here was, was quite the opposite. People were particularly calm. Uh, no one, uh, you know, changed their daily schedule, changed their daily lives. No one went to Starbucks any less than they normally do just because of Chinese military drills. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, Pelosi's visit was perceived as very positive. Uh, you know, public opinion polls, both from uh, green-leaning uh, groups and blue-leaning groups, both show that Pelosi's uh, visit was seen positively by almost everyone in Taiwan. I think it's important to add that for a lot of Taiwanese who have lived in the shadow of Chinese threats for so long, that the they 
place the onus of any escalating tensions on the PRC and not on Washington. And they widely accepted support um, for what was viewed as um, US as increasing US support through the policy visit. Yeah, so I think this sort of ties into something that we've been hearing about a lot in English language media over the last few years, which is these predictions of a sort of shortened timeline for a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Um, that perhaps Xi Jinping is losing patience with waiting and is interested in an invasion in the near term. Um, and, you know, there's been some very sort of alarmist and alarming coverage, including I think the most sort of notable example was the Economist um, cover story uh, with a picture of Taiwan um, saying the most dangerous place on earth. Can you talk a little bit about how people in Taiwan perceive their security? Do they worry about an imminent attack by the PRC? Um, how do they sort of live life with this narrative that's going on in the English language media? Um, or is that narrative not really very relevant on the ground there? Well, I would say first that a lot of what has been lost in the media commentary on the potential and impending, impending deadline um, is that a lot of these assessments are on Chinese capabilities by say 2027, I think was the latest projection and not necessarily Chinese intent. And I think it's important to disambiguate the difference between China having the operational means to invade Taiwan versus it being a leadership decision to do so. Um, I think that's often lost in the debate with a lot of people treating 2027 as a be all end all. Um, I would say on the ground in Taiwan, the threat has been so prolonged um, that it doesn't affect people's day-to-day -day lives. I would also add that I think in the follow-up of everything going on in the Ukraine, there's been renewed efforts for uh, civil society and civil defense to shore up greater um, readiness, but I don't think there's necessarily an urgency in place um, in the people's minds. So some of my own public opinion research was able to actually ask Taiwanese people how they felt about China and how they felt about threats uh, from China. Uh, and there's kind of a common misconception that people in Taiwan are blasé, passive, don't really notice threats, don't really you know, perceive these threats as dangerous. Uh, and our public opinion polling shows that that's not necessarily true. Uh, Taiwanese uh, respondents were able to tell that there was a qualitative increase in threats over the last year. Uh, and that they do feel that there is a possibility of conflict, uh, but they're not worried about this conflict breaking out necessarily in the short term. What this kind of tells us is kind of just what we can confirm from recent behavior that uh, Taiwanese are not letting these types of military threats sort of run their lives uh, and that people are not kind of being uh, overtly panicked uh, in response to these Chinese threats. Uh, but these threats are still very much registering on kind of the daily psyche of Taiwanese people. Uh, even if they're not kind of letting that lead to some sort of kind of social breakdown. Yeah, it's interesting hearing both of you talk about what seems like a really significant disconnect between the sort of um, language and perceptions of, you know, both the sort of how the Chinese threat has changed over time and whether it has changed over time, um, but also what that means for the behavior of people in Taiwan. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you think about that disconnect? Is it a problem that we have one narrative in the US that's this narrative of imminent threat and a narrative in Taiwan that seems quite different from that? I think there's very much a challenge uh, in kind of describing 
uh, Taiwanese laxness, uh, and as, as I think many in the US would, would maybe portray it and how many Taiwanese people see it as kind of resilience. Uh, and at the same time, I think there is a genuine fear from both the US government and from people in the Taiwanese government that this kind of perceived resilience is in fact too lax. Uh, I think this is really ultimately where the disconnect comes in, where people in Taiwan uh, don't necessarily see the need to be panicked and people in the United States and perhaps some people in the Taiwanese government do wish that there was perhaps more of a uh, desire to be prepared uh, for the event of an invasion. I think we've even seen members of the DPP trying to cautiously, uh, but kind of in a increasingly firm handed way, encourage civil society to uh, consider things like uh, first aid training, uh, kind of, you know, military preparedness. Um, now, these kinds of classes and courses aren't necessarily becoming widespread and popular. Uh, but it does signal that, you know, even though Taiwanese people are, are very relaxed themselves, there does seem to be some amount of urgency from the Taiwanese government uh, to try to hope that that, that that attitude does change a little bit. Um, I would add on to what Lev says by, I, I guess I would say that um, memories are short in Washington and, you know, with the Ma administration, uh, eight years of cross-strait, more or less cross-strait calm, I feel like um, there was a bit of amnesia, I would say, in Washington. Um, I think for people in Taiwan that have lived through, you know, it, it, because China is um, something in their day-to-day -day lives, not necessarily, you know, something that weighs on it, but it's just present. There, There's the understanding that this isn't the first time things have escalated, things have been bad before um, under the previous DPP administration. Um, and so it doesn't come off as something new and particularly, I would say, urgent. So, Lev, I wanted to come back to uh, what you were saying a minute ago about civil defense and, you know, new programs designed to sort of train citizens and increase readiness. I'm wondering how much of that relates to something Jessica brought up before, which is the invasion of Ukraine. Um, that must be something that is um, part of the public conversation. I'm curious to hear about your sense of how much that's actually driving shifts in public opinion or changes in behavior in Taiwan. Uh, so you do see these kinds of programs being promoted by the DPP on, you know, civil preparedness. Uh, and there's some public opinion data that shows that, you know, after Ukraine, that public opinion in Taiwan has changed. Uh, you know, before Pelosi's visit, it showed that faith in the U.S. declined. But after Pelosi's visit, faith in the U.S. has gone back up, uh, which tells me, you know, a, a very important lesson that public opinion is dynamic and that uh, it's, it's going to be changing all the time, depending on what news is uh, of the day. Um, but, you know, especially with something like, uh, you know, how much Taiwanese are paying attention to this ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, you know, I think there is definitely shifts in the Tsai administration, uh, particularly with how they view uh, what types of uh, defense packages Taiwan needs. Uh, of course, there's an even uh, more complicated question about the Tsai administration versus the ROC military and how coordinated they are in kind of being able to uh, adapt to uh, what Taiwan needs. Um, but, you know, in terms of civil society, uh, I think, you know, what everyone is constantly trying to understand is, are Taiwanese willing to stand up in the event of an invasion in the way that Ukraine has? Uh, and you know, it's challenging to say for certain with public opinion, there, there's a there's kind of a jargony uh, social science phrase called hypothetical bias, which is 
uh, asking, you know, if there was a war, what would you do? Uh, and even though, you know, it's, it's, it's important to ask those questions, ultimately asking how someone would act in kind of this really big uh, life change is, is kind of a difficult thing to, to, to really get at. Um, but there is uh, folks that are trying their best to really understand uh, just how much uh, preparedness and attitudes towards the idea of conflict are changing in light of Ukraine. Uh, and I think we're going to continue seeing uh, some important data coming out uh, in, in uh, the next uh, six months to a year about it. Jessica, you're based in DC. Can you speak a little bit to um, changes in the sort of policy conversation in DC about Taiwan in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? How do you see those conversations changing in terms of the, their urgency or the kinds of topics or policy proposals that are discussed in terms of keeping Taiwan safe from the possibility of a Chinese invasion? Well, I would say first, I think there's a... Um, there's too much emphasis on drawing parallels between the two scenarios. And, um, you know, a lot of people have said Taiwan is not Ukraine, China is not Russia. Um, but I think it has um, brought about a sense of urgency among policymakers of how to further shore up support for Taiwan. Um, we've seen this with the visits from um, Congress. There's been a number since Pelosi, uh, there's been a number in the follow up to Pelosi's trip. Um, there's been debates on, you know, which weapon systems are the best um, for Taiwan in a contingency scenario and talks for deepened um, security cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan, um, as well as how U.S. allies and partners can further support Taiwan to internationalize the cross-strait issue is a term that I've seen used around here. Um, and I will say one thing that has come out of the post-Ukraine invasion has been more global support and understanding of Taiwan's position. Um, I think there are commonalities there that are important in that a lot of Eastern European countries are seeing similarities um, with what's with the Chinese threat to Taiwan and you know kind of the Russian threat to the overall region. So I'd like us to shift gears a little bit. I think one of the things that um, was frustrating to many Taiwan scholars and analysts uh, in the coverage of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is just how much of the sort of local politics in Taiwan, uh, local politics and society in Taiwan gets lost from these conversations. The idea that Taiwan is a place with people who are making their own political decisions and their own life decisions um, and not just you know, a sort of dot on a map in the, in the possibility of a conflict between the U.S. and China. And so I'd like us to talk a little bit about um, domestic politics in Taiwan. There are some really important upcoming elections that um, I think have the, the potential to have big effects both on Taiwan's domestic politics and potentially on um, the cross-strait relationship and the relationship with the U.S. So Taiwan voters will go to the polls in November for an important set of um, a kind of midterm elections and elections of mayors across Taiwan. And then in 2024 will be the next presidential election to replace President Tsai, who will be um, term, term limited out after two terms. So so I was hoping that you could say a little bit about what you will be watching, especially closely in both the upcoming elections in November and in the lead up to 2024. So, uh, you know, I think there's so much to say about the midterms, but ultimately what people I think uh, outside of Taiwan want to know is, is what does this mean for the next presidential election? Um, and uh, importantly, things like the mayoral uh, races will kind of set up who are the teams 
uh, in charge of leading campaigns uh, and rallying for parties uh, in 2024. Uh, so, you know, this, the better the KMT or the DPP do, uh, it really will kind of set the stage for uh, their positions in 2024. But, uh, you know, more importantly, uh, if the KMT and DPP do not do well, that will equally say a lot about their position for uh, 2024. For example, uh, you know, even though if you're in Washington, D.C., you might not think that who wins mayor of Taliyan is particularly important, uh, but Taliyan was supposed to be an easy DPP victory, and now it looks like it's going to go to the KMT. And Taipei might also go to the KMT, and new Taipei might also go to the KMT. So if all, you know, if, if the KMT really wins in a strong way, uh, it could lead to a need to switch up leadership and powers circles within the DPP, which could very much change the nomination process in 2024. Uh, and same for the KMT. Uh, if they do not do well, then Eric Chu is going to be in a particularly precarious position to try to pull his party out for 2024. The question that I'll be looking at is more on the long-term viability of the KMT. There's been a lot of discussion on how the KMT has struggled um, post 2020, they have a messaging issue, they have different factional politics at play, there's um, difficulty recruiting support from young voters. Um, and I think a lot of that hinges on what their cross-strait policy will be. Um, to me, their performance um, in this November and moving to 2024 could shape the future direction of what the party goes in. Um, there's the question of whether the 1992 consensus is still viable as the cross-strait policy for the KMT. Um, and if they adjust that, you know, would, would that be tolerated by the PRC? Because I think what's often overlooked is that the KMT in a way serves as a moderating force in cross-strait politics because it counterbalances, at least from Beijing, the view that Taiwan is overtly pro-independence. And it's a party that, you know, is China's preferred party to talk to, um, you know, there's that long history between the KMT and the CCP. And so the question is, if the KMT shifts in a direction counter to Beijing's preferred outcome, will there still be the political will to engage between the two sides? And how will Beijing perceive a KMT that's shifting away from some of its more um, historical stances? I think one of the big questions um, that was you know, sort of a topic of discussion in the wake of the 2020 presidential election, which was a landslide victory um, for the DPP and for President Tsai, um, was whether it is possible for the KMT to come up with a new formulation um, that will allow it to play that more moderating force while also maybe stepping away from um, a position that is really sort of pro-unification, which really is does not appeal to Taiwan voters anymore. Um, do you see any evidence from perhaps any of the candidates who are running for these mayoral races in 2020, or just more generally in terms of the KMT's you know, rhetoric and language that it's using to talk about its policy positions? Do you have any sense of what that new position might be? Like, what is the KMT going to do to serve as a moderating force while also not totally alienating voters who really have zero interest at this point in uni unifying with China under any kind of uh, circumstances. So this gets a bit, I guess, complicated because the 1992 consensus in and of itself is difficult to articulate because to me, fundamentally, there wasn't really a consensus. It was just to shelve issues um, and through political will to agree to disagree, even though they never said that. 
right? The KMT side says one China respective interpretations, the PRC side tacitly accepted that by opening, um, by allowing the 1992 consensus to serve as the foundation for cross-strait dialogue and opening direct channels of communication, but they never repeated those words. It's always just been one China. And what we're seeing now is that the KMT is trying to make the 1992 consensus more ambiguous. Um, you saw uh, under previous chair Johnny Chang that he was trying to emphasize the existence of the ROC as a fundamental element of the 1992 consensus, even though I don't think that was accepted um, by the party old guard. Um, and you saw with Eric Chu, um, in his address at the Brookings CSIS uh, launch event for their representative office in Washington that he called a non-consensus consensus. But on the other side, you're seeing the PRC hone in on One China being the PRC. Um, there's been signals out of former officials um, from the Taiwan Affairs Office that said the, fun the true 1992 consensus is One China being the People's Republic of China. And so you, you're seeing a divergence I guess an even further divergence in the way they are articulating the 92 consensus. Um, but I will say, I think it fundamentally hinges on whether there's the political will um, to, to ex tacitly, again, accept any articulation. So something important worth noting is that for these midterm elections, things like the recent Chinese threats are not part of political discourse. Mayoral candidates are not running their campaigns on national security. Uh, and this makes sense. That's really more of a presidential uh, issue, uh, but that doesn't mean that you know questions of Taiwan's uh, identity uh, are not relevant for the midterm elections. They most certainly are. Uh, a lot of the issues, even though they are through these filters of things like you know a thesis scandal, really ultimately funnel down to uh, perceptions of party quality uh, and quality of the candidates and who they feel uh, is the organization that is most capable of helping. Uh, Taiwan go into the future that they think is is best. Uh, and even though we're not necessarily seeing China on the forefront of political issues here, uh, despite some attempts by the DPP to frame it that way, uh, it doesn't mean that it's, you know, kind of lost on, on Taiwan, uh, you know, kind of the importance of the question of what are these parties going to do in the future. Great. So I, we have time maybe for one more topic. I want us to talk a little bit about Taiwan's kind of soft power, its ability to sell itself um, and to, you know, sort of convince people in the world that Taiwan is a good actor um, that is trying to, you know, be a sort of force for good in the world. So I think Taiwan got a lot of um, positive media attention, especially in the first maybe 18 months of the pandemic for a really effective COVID response. Um, life in Taiwan was pretty normal while all of us were sort of locked up in our individual rooms um, in the U.S., unable to go outside. And um, I think that in combination with the zero COVID policies in mainland China that have made it very difficult for people to travel there and the sort of increasing political repression that has also made China less and less hospitable for journalists, for students, for um, NGOs. Uh, those things are really serving as forces to sort of encourage people to pay attention to Taiwan and move to Taiwan. So we've seen foreign journalists relocating to Taiwan. We've seen some major um, uh, NGOs setting up operations there um, as people have moved out of both mainland China and Hong Kong. And so I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about 
what you think Taiwan can do to sort of capitalize on that positive attention um, and, you know, sort of keep it moving forward in the next couple of years as obviously the, the COVID piece of that um, perhaps changes a little bit. Yeah, talk about perhaps one of the biggest unintended consequences China could have ever possibly uh, foreseen by kicking out all the American journalists is that they went to Taiwan and Taiwan coverage has not only increased in quantity, but in terms of quality, uh, where, you know, just on this double 10 day, we saw CNN run a clip on the white terror, which I think uh, even just a couple of years ago, I don't think any Taiwan scholar would have ever bet money that they would see white terror on CNN. Uh, and you know, really, it's a matter of trying to maintain this level of appeal uh, for both international journalists and kind of uh, international uh, employers in general. Now, some of the struggles that Taiwan has is that many of the kind of bureaucratic structures uh, that allow for people to come to Taiwan are still very difficult uh, and high bar. Uh, and even though there have been some programs to try to encourage international audiences to consider Taiwan uh, a lot of these programs still kind of suffer from a lot of just uh, bureau bureaucratic malpractice, uh, difficulty getting a visa, inconsistent rules and policies, difficult enforcement. Um, and it's, it's sometimes a worry because sometimes Taiwan's greatest enemy can be itself with some of these bureaucratic structures uh, that are just not even on a lot of politicians' radars as being in need of reform uh, or in need of change. Uh, and it's something that if those structures were just a little bit cleaner and a little bit more accessible, uh, it would only make Taiwan's international coverage that much better. I would just add to what Love said um, and say that, you know, with the re with the upcoming opening up of Taiwan, I think this week, very soon, um, that will encourage more travel to Taiwan, more people to go to Taiwan. Um, and to add on to the bit about journalists, it's not just journalists, it's also students. And what's fascinating to me Perhaps from a more personal perspective is, you know, when I was studying in graduate school, everyone wanted to go to China. Um, you know, if I said I wanted to go to Taiwan, it was kind of treated as a, oh, could you not get a scholarship to go to China? It wasn't, it, it, it was, no one treated it as, oh, you opted to go to Taiwan because you wanted to study Taiwan. And I think right now with China being closed off, um, with it being pretty aggressive against students studying there, um, like a lot of the US government fellowships to study in China are no longer viable. You have people going to Taiwan to, to study Chinese, but inadvertently gaining a better understanding of Taiwan society, of Taiwan politics. And I think we're gonna see that um, play out in the next generation of China slash Taiwan scholars is that you're gonna have people with less experience in China and greater understanding of Taiwan, which you know in Washington, I feel like is very, very much needed. So we're almost at the end of our time. I want to end with a big question. Take it in whatever direction you want. So what do you think is the single most important thing that you wish more people understood about Taiwan? Perhaps not understand about Taiwan, but in framing discussions on Taiwan, I think it's always important to say that the PRC has never had jurisdictional control of Taiwan. Um, you know, there's the how, how do you disambiguate the term of China comes up a lot. And I think it's always important to clarify that the current government in Beijing has not controlled Taiwan. And we see this often in media reports that, you know, Chinese, China views Taiwan as a province or like historically there have been, there, you know, historically Taiwan has been a part of China and it, it's hard to parse that out, you know, in a few lines. And so I would always default to the PRC has not had jurisdictional control over Taiwan. 
the thing I like to celebrate the most is is just how dynamic of democracy Taiwan is, uh, especially telling my American friends that Taiwan does not suffer uh, from the same two-party lock system as the United States uh, because of Taiwan's electoral system, because Taiwan does allow for small parties uh, to have meaningful participation in electoral politics, and that Taiwan's democracy is uh, in many ways uh, just as robust, if not more robust, uh, than the United States. Uh, and that's something to be celebrated, uh, that there are, there's so much about Taiwan uh, internally and domestically that I think uh, so many people can identify with uh, that doesn't get brought into the headlines, things like its pride for marriage equality, uh, things like its pride for um, uh, progressive values. Uh, and, you know, these parts of Taiwan, uh, unfortunately, don't make headlines because there's uh, arguably these days a lot more uh, urgent things to talk about. Um, but I, I do hope that uh, if there is uh, opportunity that that people can see Taiwan for, for all that it is and, and not just kind of the, the scary headlines. Yeah, I think um, my my answer is maybe somewhat similar to yours, Lev, in that um, I think there's this tendency to assume that, um, of course, it makes sense for Taiwan to be considered a part of China in some sense, because ethnically, many people um, in, who live in Taiwan, you know, had family that came at some point in the past from China. And I think that really fails to capture the ways in which Taiwan has developed a very distinct identity. And politics is a part of that. But I think political, democratic political participation has become a kind of cultural value in Taiwan that um, feels very different from a context like the US where many people feel very, very disengaged with politics at this point. There's disengagement with Taiwan in Taiwan too, but um, I think this idea that democracy is something that has become a deeply felt part of the culture um, and that Taiwan has developed its own distinctive culture in lots of other ways too um, is something that is hard to appreciate unless you've been there and gets a little bit lost sometimes from the political conversations about how Taiwan does or doesn't fit in with China. Um, well, thank you both so much. I think we have reached the end of our time, so we're going to stop there. Fantastic. Um, thank you all so much, uh, Lev, uh, Jessica, Sarah, uh, for sharing your thoughts and, and insights with us today. Um, also like to thank uh, my colleagues, the National Committee behind the scenes uh, who have made uh, today's interview possible. Uh, we hope that those who have tuned in found today's interview both interesting and informative and that you'll join us uh, for future National Committee program. Thank you all again and have a great day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.